Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for joining us for the second part of our video regarding discussion for endoscopic approaches for resection of skull base. Some of the details related to more complex in, uh, endoscopic approaches to the skull base, starting with the transclival approach. Ted, thanks for your time, and please go ahead. Aaron, thank you so much for having me. So uh, this is part two. Uh, uh, first uh, part, we dealt with uh, a lot of the transphenoidal approaches. Uh, we're going to move on to a transclival approach. Um, now, as I mentioned before, you can get to the superior third of the clivus or so through the sphenoid sinus, and you can also get to the bottom of the clivus, sphenoid sinus. Um, this is an example of a uh, transphenoidal approach to the clivus. And what you'll see here is the dura uh, of the cella. And now we've opened up the dura, sorry, we've opened up the bone of the clivus between the carotid arteries below the cella. Uh, and this gets you into your prepontine area. Here's another example of that. You see the pituitary gland, the cavernous sinus, the internal carotid artery. Uh, and we've taken out this, uh, in this example, a chordoma in the back of the sphenoid sinus that's invaded into the clivus and also removed uh, the dorsum uh, cella and the uh, posterior clinoids. Uh, and this is the kind of view you can get coming in uh, through the clivus of the basilar artery, the posterior cerebral artery, superior cerebellar, uh, bilateral third nerves, and the mammillary bodies would be right up here. And this is the uh, uh, pons and the, and the mesencephalon just above that. So I'm going to show you a video of how we took out this uh, enterogenous cyst uh, in front of the pons. Let me go to the next movie, please. So in this situation, we, remo we removed the uh, bone over the uh, cella. We're drilling out the uh, bone. Uh, of the back of the clivus. Uh, we're opening up the arachnoid, and you can see that we get right into the cyst. We dissect around it and find the uh, basilar artery, and then internally decompress the cyst. Uh, it's a soft cyst, so we've exposed the entire basilar. Uh, here you can see the third nerve on one side, uh, posterior cerebral superior cerebellar. So quick movie of that one. Oh, stop. A little bit of fat graft in the area, but the tumor's been completely removed. Uh, through the sphenoid. So uh, this is a uh, clival chordoma that is uh, extradural. Uh, you can see that it presents itself to the, uh, let's see if I can get my pointer to work, excuse me, presents itself to the uh, back of the sphenoid sinus just below the pituitary gland. Uh, but you also note that the tumor extends behind the carotid artery on the patient's left side. Not so much on the right side, but mostly on the left side. And I'll show you how we deal with that. Can we go to the next movie? So here we are drilling out the bone of the clivus. This is the pituitary gland uh, here. So we're below the pituitary gland. And you can see we drill out a little bit of bone and we fall right into the tumor. Uh, we can get a very early uh, frozen section and a biopsy. Um, this is from the uh, earlier uh, 2D uh, scopes that were low standard definition. You can see the resolution is not quite as good. Um, but we're drilling out now the bone towards the carotid arteries <clears throat> and back towards the dura. So here is now the dura. Uh, and we know this is an extradural tumor. This is the uh, cella. And we know the tumor goes uh, to the carotid. So we do have to drill out the bone all the way to the carotid arteries. Here we are removing more tumor uh, from adjacent to the carotid artery on the left side. Uh, and, uh, you know, most of these tumors are fairly soft uh, and easier, fairly easy to remove. We're now removing the bone over the cavernous sinus on the left side. So here's this, the cellas over here. This is the cavernous sinus. 
Now we're working behind the cavernous sinus on the left side and we can stay extradural and work behind the cavernous sinus up towards the posterior clinoid. There's the Doppler showing us the location of the carotid. This is the carotid artery here and we're going to work behind the carotid artery, uh, retract the carotid artery laterally and then use our angled endoscopes, angled instruments, angled suctions to work back behind the carotid artery through a ventral approach. You can see we can get out all of the uh, little bits of tumor uh, in that area. So here's the post-op scan. You can see how we've extended our uh, resection back behind the uh, uh, carotid artery on the left side. Here's another example of a chordoma. Uh, it's also extradural, but you can see it extends a little bit below the sphenoid, um, pushes back on the dura quite a bit. Um, there is an extension behind the carotid artery on the right side, in front of the carotid artery on the left side, and so all that has to be studied pre-op. Let's go to the next movie. I just wanted to show you an example of skeletonizing the carotid artery uh, through the nose. We tend to use uh, CTA navigation because we want to see the bony anatomy uh, and the vascular anatomy and the relationship between the carotids and the clivus. So here we are flicking off uh, eggshell bone over the carotid artery. Um, and removing a tumor behind the carotid. This is the carotid right here, and here's tumor uh, going up to the posterior clinoid. And we'll uh, get it uh, all the tumor off the dura, uh, completely resect that. Here we are removing more and more tumor off the dura below the pituitary gland between uh, the two carotids. So here's the pituitary gland, cavernous sinus, carotid artery, dura. You see a little bit of green fluorescein from CSF. And here's that post-op scan. You can see that bowing of the tumor has been resolved. We've taken out the whole tumor. It's mostly extradural. We put some fat in there because there was some uh, CSF leaking. Here again, you can see the uh, fat graft and the tumor's been removed. Um, this is just another example of an intradural chordoma extending back to the brainstem. You can see the corridor we used to remove that, a little bit of fat graft in the way. Um, this is a, um, uh, an epidermoid, and what's interesting about this uh, tumor is that it extends pretty high up uh, into the retrocellar area, but also extends down below the clivus. If we did just a transclival approach, we would not get this whole tumor out. We could take it out probably to about here, and if we went above, did a supercellar approach, we could take out the top part of the tumor. So in some situations, uh, you might do what's called a pituitary transposition and just fling the pituitary forward. Uh, and work below it, but we found that closing that large defect is difficult, and uh, we had a big CSF leak doing that, so we decided to do another approach where we leave the pituitary in place, and we work below it uh, through the clivus to take out the bottom of the tumor, and then we work above it uh, through a trans uh, planum, trans tuberculum approach to take out the top of the tumor, and I'll show you how we did that. We go to the next movie. So here's the sphenoid sinus. Uh, this is the uh, floor of the sphenoid sinus that we're drilling out anteriorly. Uh, and now here's the clivus. You can see here's the uh, cella. These are the carotid arteries on either side. We're drilling out the bone between the carotid arteries uh, of the uh, clivus at the back of the sphenoid. There can be quite a bit of venous bleeding in this area from this uh, uh, basilar venous plexus. And we just pack that off with gel foam elevate the head a little bit. Now we work through a, a transplanum approach. This is the stalk. This is the pituitary gland. We're working above the pituitary gland to take out the uh, epidermoid, uh, superior aspect of the epidermoid. You'll see the uh, superior hypophyseal arteries uh, on either side, one, two, 
We preserved those and just worked in between them in order to get out the top of the tumor. And then we go below and work through the clivus, below the pituitary gland to get off the bottom of the tumor. And we dissected this uh, plane around this uh, uh, epidermoid. There's the basilar artery. And then we'll uh, pull out that bottom piece once we've dissected it free. This gives us room to uh, place an angled endoscope uh, into the uh, prepontine cistern and then get a view working up from below through the clivus of the retrocellar area. I'll show you that in a second. Here's the uh, basilar artery. Here's the pons. Um, another little piece of tumor we'll dissect free. Uh, and then we will advance the endoscope into the cavity and look up and you'll see the uh, PCA, posterior cerebral and superior cerebellar arteries in just a minute. We've dissected this free from the, uh, from the basilar. So now we're looking up from below. Here's the basilar tip, superior cerebellar. You can see some of the epidermoid uh, stuck. So now we have an opening above and an opening below, but the pituitary gland is still intact. It's still in place. Um, and that allows us just to do a gasket seal above, a gasket seal below, but we don't have this enormous defect to close. We just have to close the bottom and the top. So we put fat inside, and then we do a gasket seal above with a little piece of uh, MedPor and some fasciolata. And then do a second gasket seal below. Here's the second gasket seal. And then we cover the whole thing with a nasal septal flap. And the pituitary gland kind of keeps the uh, buttress in place and helps us close that skull base in a watertight fashion to decrease the risk of CSF leak. There's that nasal septal flap. And it's important to put the flap past the edges of the fasciolata. Otherwise, it'll just stick to the fasciolata and not to the bone. And then we cover it all with Duraseal to keep it in place. Now, in this situation, we would leave a lumbar drain in for a day or two and drain it at a low rate of about 5 cc's an hour. Ted, I wanted to ask you a question. Uh, is there a risk to pituitary stalk and potentially DI when you work above and below and manipulate the stalk a little yeah, bit? Yeah, absolutely. There is a risk. And uh, we do everything we can to preserve the vascular supply, to preserve the anatomy. Uh, sometimes we preserve everything and the patient still goes into DI and sometimes they don't. Um, but you're right. That is something that is at risk uh, for this approach. But it's not something that we always see if we do a good job preserving the vascular supply. So here's yeah, here's the post-op scan. You see a little bit of fat in there, and the tumor's been removed. And here's the post-op uh, diffusion-weighted imaging, which is where those uh, uh, epidermides are so are so bright. And this is an interesting case. This was a, a malignant recurrent ependymoma that had been operated on two or three times in the past, had radiation therapy, had chemotherapy, failed everything. And this is an intraparenchymal tumor. Uh, and this was growing, uh, as you can see, deep into the uh, brainstem. And the patient was becoming hyperreflexic and couldn't uh, move his legs and had uh, increased tone. But if you can see, there's a very thin rim of bone. And uh, given the lateral extent of this tumor, it was very reasonable for us to work through a, a sphenoid, drill out the bone, and actually carve out an intraparenchymal tumor, work within the brainstem through an endonasal approach. This is just showing you that approach. We've taken out all the bone, and we're now working within the uh, tumor itself and dissecting it free uh, from the brainstem. Now, we weren't trying to get a gross total resection because this is a three-time recurrent tumor that's been radiated and, and failed chemo. But you can see we were able to get out probably 90% of the tumor, decompress his brainstem, and preserve his function to prepare him for his next uh, adjuvant therapy that he was going to undergo. Um, this is just some publications on the uh, transclival approach. 
So the transnasal corridor allows us to go uh, and avoid any sinus if we want, go through the cribriform plate, through the bottom of the clivus, and through the odontoid. The key landmark here uh, is the vertical attachment of the middle turbinate if we're working upwards. And if you look at the orange colored area, um, this is the transnasal approach. comes medial to the middle turbinate up to the uh, cribriform plate. If we go lateral to the middle turbinate, then we're in the ethmoids, and that's the green area. Um, but for the transnasal approach, uh, it's the orange area. So it's good for small CSF leaks like this little uh, encephalocele or meningocele. Here's an example of this meningocele. It's coming off the cribriform plate. Here's that vertical attachment of the middle turbinate. You see it's medial to the vertical attachment of the middle turbinate. And here's the septum. Uh, you can see the olfactory nerve if you go up uh, far enough. Um, we published on repair of CSF leak rate, which is uh, very, very good uh, using a purely endonasal endoscopic approach. Um, what about the clivus below the sphenoid sinus? Here's a lesion uh, below the sphenoid sinus. And you can see through an endonasal approach, uh, you really can come right back into the uh, clivus. You have to take off this basopharyngeal fascia and reflect that down. Uh, and you work between the eustachian tubes. Here's one eustachian tube and the other. Here's the sphenoid sinus, which we opened as a landmark. But this is the area of the clivus, and then below that would be the odontoid. We make a U-shaped flap, uh, uh, invert, inverted U-shaped flap, and, uh, or horseshoe-shaped flap, and pull that down. There's the clivus. So here's an intradural tumor, another epidermoid, uh, that is ventral now to the midbrain. You can see it's below the sphenoid sinus. So if we open the sphenoid, we're not going to get this out. We have to open up the clivus, and there's quite a bit of bone we have to drill through in order to get that out. Can we go to the next movie? So here we are taking down that basopharyngeal fascia. We're working between the eustachian tubes. We're drilling out the bone now below the sphenoid sinus. Um, navigation is critical here because you want to have a sense of how deep you are, how far you can go. Um, and now we just have a thin layer of bone over the dura in front of the midbrain. And we can open that up with the kerosene. And here's our dural opening uh, from the bottom of the clivus to the top. And we make a linear incision. And we know that the tumor is going to be right behind the dura. Uh, there'll be arachnoid first. Um, and here we go. We fall right into the tumor right after opening the dura. And that's really the advantage of this approach. Um, once we take out some of the tumor, we can finish opening up the dura, cauterize back the dural edges so they don't get in our way. We're not going to sew it shut. Uh, and then use our uh, angled instruments uh, and suctions to try to uh, roll the tumor into the midline where it's safe to remove it. Make sure we dissect it free uh, and take the whole thing out. Here you can see the cavity when we're done, and the tumor's been removed. So here's the post-op scan. You can see a little bit of fat in that area uh, where previously uh, the tumor was. Um, here's a giant uh, uh, chordoma uh, involving uh, the sphenoid uh, and the retrosphenoid as well as the retroclival. Uh, area and obviously we'd have to do a combined approach, do a transnasal and a transphenoidal approach. This is a tumor that's in the um, occipital condyle, uh, and we uh, this was a squamous cell. Uh, this was actually a, a metastatic carcinoma. Excuse me. We just wanted to do a biopsy, but it shows you that this area that uh, might potentially be a difficult area just to do a biopsy on through an endonasal approach, we can come right into this tumor, use our navigation figure out where the carotid artery is, where the tumor is, come right through the nose and have a straight shot right into the tumor and literally open up uh, through the 
uh, nasopharynx. Here's the eustachian tube on one side, eustachian tube on the other side, and the tumor is just sitting right there. It's a straight shot. So we make a little opening in the mucosa, take a biopsy specimen, and we're done. That patient can go home the same day. Uh, what about the odontoid? If you come uh, parallel to the palate, um, you can uh, get right to the uh, bottom of the clivus. Uh, you can get to the uh, top of the odontoid and even down to the bottom of the C2. So here's the opening to get to the odontoid. We have to go a little bit lower. Uh, we're working between the eustachian tubes, opening up that uh, inverted U-shaped uh, bit of fascia. Uh, here is the bottom of the clivus, and now we're working below that, and this is going to be the anterior ring of C1. Here's the anterior ring of C1, here's the odontoid, here's the bottom of the clivus, and all of that can be reached through an endonasal approach using an endoscope. Can we show the video? The advantage of this odontoid approach is that the incision is in the back of the nose, it's not in the throat. So these patients can be extubated postoperatively, and they can be fed the next day, uh, and they can get mobilized and out of the hospital much more quickly because there's no incision in the back of their throat. Here we are taking down the uh, basopharyngeal fascia between the eustachian tubes. We're using a uh, just a bovi with a red rubber catheter on it, kerosening out uh, the panis, using a drill to take the anterior ring of C1. Uh, here's the bottom of the clivus. We're kerosening, we're uh, excuse me, uh, cavitroning out some more of that panis. Uh, then we go back and take out more of the ring of C1. Uh, navigation is really useful here to figure out how wide you have to be. And then once that's done, we will expose the odontoid. And here's the lateral aspect of the odontoid that we've drilled out. So here's the cavity we've made. It's pretty deep. Here's the eustachian tubes. Uh, but we've managed to take out the entire odontoid. So here's a pre-op scan. This patient was fused preoperatively. And here's the post-op scan. You will destabilize a patient by doing this. So you do need to fuse them either uh, immediately pre-op or immediately post-op. Or you can do uh, both in one sitting. Uh, here are just some publications on the odontoid resection. So what about the transethmoid corridor? The ethmoid corridor will get you to the lateral sphenoid sinus, the lateral uh, uh, cavernous sinus, but also will get you into the orbital apex uh, and the anterior fossa. So here we're working lateral to the vertical attachment of the middle turbinate. You can see this green area through the ethmoids, and the roof of the ethmoids is called, called the fovea ethmoidalis, and your lateral limit is going to be the lamina papyracea, the medial limit is going to be the uh, middle turbinate vertical attachment. This is good for lateral meningoencephaloceles, lateral to the middle turbinate. Here's a bigger meningoencephaloceal. Uh, this is a small uh, meningioma that's uh, somewhat unilateral. And of course, a larger uh, meningioma of the olfactory groove and a uh, juvenile, uh, sorry, an esthesioneuroblastoma. So the key landmarks here uh, are the uh, anterior and posterior ethmoidal arteries. These come off the ophthalmic artery. The posterior ethmoidal artery you find just in front of the sphenoid uh, uh, sinus, um, the anterior part of the planum, and the uh, anterior ethmoid artery is just behind the frontal recess. So coming in from below, you see the superior turbinates. You see the inferior turbinates. Uh, this is the uncinate process, ethmoid bulla. Um, when you open up the sinuses, you can see the dura, the cribriform plate is medially, bilaterally. The fovea ethmoidalis is on either side. These are the orbits. This is the anterior ethmoidal arteries, frontal recess, posterior ethmoidal arteries, and this would be the sphenoid sinus here with the optic nerve, optical carotid recess, and carotid artery. 
take off the bone, and then of course expose the uh, gyrus rectus and olfactory nerves. So here's an actual endoscopic view of that anatomy. Uh, we're looking up from below. This is the orbit on one side. The orbit on the other side would be here. This is the fovea ethmoidalis on one side, fovea ethmoidalis on the other side. Uh, frontal recess would be up here, sphenoid sinus back here, and this in the middle is the cribriform plate uh, that's been removed. So to do this approach, you have to go lateral to the middle turbinate. Here's the uh, sphenoid sinus, middle turbinate. We're going lateral and doing an unsynectomy um, to expose the ethmoid bulla. Open up the ethmoid bulla. Now we're on the other side. Um, this is the middle turbinate. We're lateral. This is the fovea ethmoidalis at the roof of the ethmoid sinuses. This is an example of the ethmoid artery, lamina papyracea, fovea ethmoidalis. This is just a resection of a large olfactory group in angioma using this approach. And here's the uh, brain laterally. Here's the resection cavity um, from fovea ethmoidalis to fovea ethmoidalis, showing the brain uh, after the tumor has been removed. So here's an example of an olfactory groove meningioma. Um, when I choose cases for this approach, I don't like to do meningiomas that extend all the way up to the posterior wall of the frontal sinus, because then I think it's just as easy to use an eyebrow incision to get into it. Um, if there's some brain between the uh, back of the frontal sinus and the uh, tumor, it's a reasonable one to do. We go to the uh, video, please. So here we've uh, removed the middle turbinate. We've done the transethmoid approach. We're drilling out the bone of the uh, anterior fossa. Uh, we're drilling it out in here is laterally. This is uh, just in front of the sphenoid sinus. This is anteriorly. And once we've drilled out the bone circumferentially, we're removing bone towards the lamina papyracea, which is here, taking its entire attachment. Um, we remove the cribriform plate uh, on block. These patients will definitely lose their sense of smell, so you have to know that this is a tumor where you're not going to preserve smell. Um, and then you're just looking at the tumor. It's just hanging right in front of you, and we can dissect it off the brain. Sometimes they can be a little stuck. Here we're using a standard bipolar to dissect it off the brain on either side, and then we'll internally decompress it uh, with a cavitron. Here's our cavitron. You can see there's absolutely no brain retraction whatsoever. We're just retracting on the tumor and pulling it away from the brain. And here's the brain of the frontal lobe. And we fill that with fat, cover it with fascia lata, use our MedPOR uh, graft, and then also use a nasal septal flap. There's the MedPOR going in. So here's a post-op scan. Here's the fat in place. Uh, this was the edema that was present beforehand. Uh, and that fat will eventually resorb. But just because we can take all uh, these olfactory groove meningiomas out doesn't mean that we should. Um, and in some circumstances, I do like to use a, uh, an eyebrow incision uh, and I just want to go over that to show you that this is a great minimally invasive approach for taking out olfactory groove meningiomas. This is the view you get. This is the tumor uh, before resection and after resection. Uh, and you see all the arachnoid planes preserved and the uh, carotid and the uh, optic nerve. Um, here's an example of a meningioma that we took out uh, uh, also through an eyebrow incision, just showing you we can take out pretty big ones. Uh, you can harvest a nasal septal flap. Uh, through an eyebrow incision and use that to repair the skull base. Um, this is the uh, uh, attachment of the uh, temporalis muscle. Um, and here's the bone flap. I like to take the orbital rim, but it's a, it's a fairly minimally uh, invasive, minimal access approach to take out pretty big tumors. Uh, and here's the post-op scan. Um, but sometimes we do like to go uh, through uh, the nose, and sometimes we combine the two. So this is a olfactory groove meningioma that was above the uh, cribriform plate and went through the cribriform plate into the nose. So it had a 
uh, anterior fossa component and a nasal component. So we did an eyebrow incision, went in from above, took out the tumor, and then went in through the nose and took out the rest of the tumor. We made a separate incision here in order to get a nice big pericranial flap and then made an eyebrow incision. Let's go to the video. So what you're going to see is once the uh, uh, craniotomy has been done through the eyebrow and the orbital rim has been removed, we drill off the uh, superior aspect of the orbital rim and then we start to internally decompress the tumor. This is that uh, eloquence device. Now when you go through an eyebrow incision, it's hard to get to the cribriform plate. Here we are. We can't really get our instruments to the cribriform plate using a microscope. We can't see around that corner. But we can bring an endoscope in and do endoscope-assisted surgery through an eyebrow incision, and then we can see very nicely into the cribriform plate. And here we are using that eloquence device in endoscope-assisted eyebrow uh, micro-superorbital craniotomy. And then we're coming in from below and you doing an endonasal approach to get out the rest of the tumor and using that eloquence device and here a tissue shaver to take out that meningioma within the nose. So that's a combined above and below approach, which then we close with a nasal septal flap and a pericranial flap. And here's the post-op scan, trying the tumor removed. Aesthesioneuroblastomas can also be removed through uh, endonasal endoscopic approaches. Um, this is an embryonal rhabdomyosarcoma, a similar tumor um, that we took out. And it is important to get negative margins in these malignant cases. They do not need to be removed on block, um, but they do need to have a complete resection with negative margins. Can we go to the video? Um, so if you cannot achieve that through an endonasal approach, you probably should be doing a craniotomy or a combined approach, craniosal approach. Um, but in some circumstances, you can achieve a complete resection with negative margins through the nose, and those are well-selected, appropriate cases. Here we're working between the middle turbinates. Uh, we've taken out the bulk of the tumor. We're taking out the uh, ethmoid arteries. You can see the dura uh, below the uh, anterior fossa. And we dissect the dura because the tumors do uh, extend into the, through the towards the olfactory bulb through the dura, and that has to be resected. Uh, there we've removed the uh, cristigalli. We're working in the interhemispherically along the falks. Here's the frontal recess, the tumor removed. Here's the lamina papyracea removed and the sphenoid sinus behind, and that's the uh, cavity. So here's the post-op scan. Um, and here's just a description of a paper of that transethmoidal transcribiform approach. Now, it turns out the orbital apex also presents itself to the sphenoid sinus and to the ethmoid sinuses. Uh, and you can remove things, but only from the medial uh, uh, orbital apex. The first thing you'll encounter is going to be the medial rectus muscle. So you have to be very, very careful not to damage the medial rectus. Um, this is an ethmoid osteoma that went into that medial uh, orbital apex. Um, and uh, the post-op uh, cavity, this was an extradural tumor, so we were able to take it out through the nose. She went uh, home pretty quickly. Um, but you can also get a little more anteriorly through the ethmoids. Uh, here's the back of the orbital apex through the sphenoids. Uh, and this is an intraconal tumor. Uh, obviously, the orbital fat's going to come out when you do this kind of surgery. Um, what about the transmaxillary corridor? This is the last corridor we're going to talk about. This is what gets you lateral in the skull base. Uh, and can get you to the infratemporal fossa, pterygopalatine fossa, uh, the petrous apex, the lateral sphenoid sinus, and the uh, lateral cavernous sinus. It's very good for these uh, uh, CSF leaks of Sternberg Canal, these lateral sphenoid sinus CSF leaks. You might think you can get this 
through a, a transphenoidal approach, but it's very hard to see this far lateral through a standard transphenoidal approach. So you really need to drill off some of the pterygoids in order to see this. This is Meckel's cave, which we can get to through uh, a trans uh, pterygoidal approach. Here's a juvenile nasal angiofibroma that's in the pterygopalatine fossa. Um, here's a petrus, petrus apex cholesterol granuloma, which you, we can also get to through an endonasal endoscopic approach and drain them that way. Uh, you have to know the anatomy of the pterygopalatine fossa, uh, the inforbital nerve, the palatine nerve, the pterygopalatine ganglion, and the sphenopalatine artery turning into the uh, internal maxillary artery, as well as the descending palatine artery. This is just an example now on the other side. So here's the cella, here's the ICA, here's the optic uh, nerve. Um, and what you'll see is the back of the maxillary sinus has been removed. And you can see the inforbital artery, inforbital nerve, maxillary artery, sphenopalatine artery. And here's the pterygopalatine uh, uh, ganglion. And this just shows you the sphenopalatine artery coming through. Um, this is going to be the blood supply to the nasal septal flap. And this is the cristaethmoidalis, which also has to be drilled out in order to get uh, inferiorly in that maxillary sinus. So here's a juvenile angiofibroma taken out through a purely endonasal endoscopic approach. Here's your post-op film. Um, here is a lesion in Meckel's cave. And I'll show you how we took that out. Um, just showing you that you have to open up the maxillary sinus lateral to the medial terminate. Your uh, otolaryngologist can do an unsynectomy, uh, an antrostomy, and open that up. Um, here's the sphenopalatine artery. Uh, and the uh, pterygoid bone, and you need to cauterize and cut the sphenopalatine artery. Uh, here's the perpendicular plate. Here's the back wall, the maxillary sinus. Um, and here we are opening up into Meckel's cave. Uh, this is the sphenoid sinus, so we're now lateral to that. We're looking at the lateral cavernous sinus here. Can we go to the video? So here we're doing our uh, unsynectomy and antrostomy, opening up the back wall, uh, into the medial wall, excuse me, of the maxillary sinus. Uh, we're going to expose the sphenopalatine artery. We'll cauterize and cut that. Um, drill out the pterygoid bone and expose Meckel's cave. Um, here we are in Meckel's cave, taking out the tumor. We're dopplering the carotid artery from lateral to medial. This is the lateral wall of the cavernous sinus. And here's our post-op scan with the tumor removed. Um, this is tumor in the uh, infratemporal fossa, and I show this case as an example of how we can do just a purely endonasal endoscopic approach, take out the back of the septum, work laterally, work through the back wall of the maxillary sinus, get into the infratemporal fossa, pterygopalatine fossa that's been expanded here, and take out this whole tumor. So we're working our way around this juvenile nasal angiofibroma. They bleed quite a bit, so we like to work our way around them before getting into it. This is the crista ethmoidalis. We're still in the nose. This is the maxillary sinus up here. Um, we're drilling out the cristaethmoidalis so we can open up the maxillary sinus widely. Most of the tumor is back here in the pterygopalatine fossa. Here we're starting to get drilling towards the pterygopalatine fossa. Now we're in the back wall of the maxillary sinus. We just flick that forward because it's very thin by the tumor. We're looking all the way into the maxillary sinus, and we're going to dissect our way around the lateral aspect of this uh, juvenile nasal angiofibroma, try to come uh, not through it but around it. You'll see that it's white because it's been embolized, uh, particularly the uh, IMA branches have been embolized, and that's why this lateral infratemporal fossa component is very white. So we're dissecting the musculature off the margin of the tumor, keep working our way around it, preserve the plane, try to preserve all the muscles, 
infratemporal fossa and take it out in one piece and kind of roll it forward into the nose. Now we're cutting the last uh, attachments of the tumor sharply. And then uh, finally we'll take uh, the, uh, excuse me, I'm not going to get that. Um, we'll take the uh, uh, sphenopalatine artery that's uh, giving the blood supply to most of the tumor. We'll cauterize and cut that at the end. So here's the post-op film. And you can see that we removed the tumor from within the infratemporal fossa. Uh, and there's no more tumor there. Um, here's just some of our uh, uh, clinical papers on the transpterygoidal approach. Um, we've talked a little bit about uh, closure. Uh, I want to give some more uh, detail on this gasket seal closure that, that we've developed. The idea is, in order to get a watertight closure, we take a piece of fascia lata that is larger than our opening, and we countersink a piece of bone into this area to prevent CSF from coming out and get a watertight seal because the fascia lata is uh, sort of uh, pooched around the outside. Now, in our early iteration of this, we just put Duracell on top of it. Now we put a nasal septal flap on top and put Duracell on that. And if we're not in the third ventricle, we'll put fat intracranially. If we're in the third ventricle, we won't put fat because I'm always afraid it's going to fall into the third ventricle and obstruct the um, aqueduct of Sylvius. So here's an opening. Here's the fascia lata moving in. It's bigger than the uh, uh, opening, and we buttress it with a piece of Medpor or a piece of Vomer. And you can see how it cauliflowers out around the outside so that it prevents any fluid from leaking out. And here we're covering it with Duracell. Here's an actual example of a surgery where we're up into the third ventricle. Um, you can see the opening in the bone. It's about this big, above the normal size cella. We take a big piece of fascia lata, put a piece of vomer in this uh, situation, and uh, countersink it. And you can see the fascia lata around the outside making a watertight seal. Cover it with uh, Duracell. Um, nowadays, we would uh, do our gasket seal, use Medpor uh, instead of Vomer, and then cover it with a, a nasoceptal flap, and then cover the flap with a Duracell. Um, patient selection is everything. I can't emphasize that enough. You have to choose the right patient for this. You have to know where you can reach with an endonasal approach and where you can't. So I've tried to highlight in green the areas where I think it's reasonable to do an endonasal endoscopic approach. Um, the carotid arteries are really our lateral border for a lot of these surgeries. It's very hard to work lateral to the carotid artery. It is possible, but it is very challenging. Um, as you can see, we extend lateral through the maxillary sinuses because that provides us a safe corridor. Um, and uh, coming in, uh, in the sagittal plane, there's quite a large area we can reach, but again, it's not, uh, it's not everything. So um, at 400, we sort of looked at our cases to see what was our rate of CSF leak, what were our complications. So I just thought I'd like to talk a little bit about that. Um, about half the cases we've done have been pituitary tumors. Now our CSF leak rate for all 400 of these cases has been 4%, and it's not that different for pituitary tumors and other tumors. At the beginning of our learning curve, we had 16 CSF leaks, and 12 of these stopped with lumbar drains, two required craniotomies, two required repeat endonasal surgery. So the rate of reoperation was only 1.2%. And what we learned from this was that a lot of these leaks would stop with a lumbar drain. So now we started to put more lumbar drains in beforehand. Now pathology is important. This is for the whole series. You can see that our meningioma CSF leak rate was really fairly high, about 10%. Cranios was acceptable at 4%, encephalocele is 3%, and chordoma 0%. 
But the learning curve is important. In the first half of our series, we had a 6% CSF leak rate in the first 200 cases. In the next 200 cases, we only had a 2% CSF leak rate. So that's really quite good. And if you look at the meningiomas, it was actually 20% in the first 200 cases and 0% in the second 200 cases. Encephalocele is the same thing. It came down dramatically from about 9% to 0%. So there is a learning curve here. But hopefully, you will learn from the mistakes that we made and other experts have made. And you guys can hit second half of the learning curve and just skip the whole first half. This is our learning curve for CSF leak after extended transplantum transtuberculum approaches. Um, when we used just a fat graft, CSF leak much too high. So we started to do more advanced closures, fat graft plus cellar reconstruction, nasoceptal flap, gasket seal, and nasoceptal flap plus a gasket seal. In this consecutive series of 61 cases, the last 13 we had no CSF leaks. Um, here's some more data. Uh, the gasket alone in a larger series of 65, 3%. Gasket plus nasoceptal flap, 40 cases, 2.5% CSF leak. Um, and these two leaks that we had, both of them stopped with a lumbar drain. So we didn't have to do any reoperations. So lumbar drains now are placed intra-op, pre-surgical. Uh, we didn't do it that much in the beginning. Now we do it in everybody who has a giant uh, tumor or definitely an intradural tumor. So if we know we're going to get a CSF leak, guaranteed to get a big leak, we'll just put a lumbar drain in beforehand. But we'll only drain it at 5 cc's an hour for 24 hours, and then we'll pull it out. And I think it allows that dural sealant to harden in the first 24 hours to hold the flap in place. Um, and we leave it open during extubation so that a pressure wave of them coughing goes out the lumbar drain and doesn't go out the nose. Um, you do get some epistaxis, although not a high rate, 1.5%. DVTs and PEs, fairly low. Uh, infection. Now here, you'd think you get a lot of infections. We're working through the nose to the brain. Um, you'd think we're going through an unsterile field to a sterile field. But it turns out we have had three cases of questionable meningitis. And the reason I say questionable was because they seemed like they had meningitis, but the lumbar punctures were negative. But all of these patients had CSF leaks. So if, you, they, if we didn't have a CSF leak after surgery, we never saw a case of meningitis. However, we did have one intracranial abscess around a fat uh, graft, and that was in a pediatric case. So the rate of infection is about 1%, and the rate of sinusitis, which we can treat with antibiotics postoperatively, was about 5%. Um, vascular injury, again, about 1%. Uh, these also were very early in our series. We had the carotid injury I mentioned, which luckily we had no neurologic sequela, one ophthalmic artery injury, which had no neurologic sequela and two strokes, uh, one of which was silent and one of which caused a brainstem infarct. And this patient did have neurologic deficits. Mortality, about 0.75%. We had one patient with a, uh, uh, a meningioma of the tuberculum cella, um, and she had diabetes, end-stage renal disease, hypertension. And she had a skull-based defect before we did our extended closures, where we put a buttress in there, and it just fell out into the nose. And we just could not uh, close it. And uh, we tried a craniotomy, endoscopic surgery. We're not successful. Um, we had a macroadenoma that died on post-op day 7 of a massive cardiac event, and one uh, olfactory groove meningioma who died post-op day 7 of a hematoma. But overall, it was a, a less than 1% mortality. What about quality of life? We've started to measure quality of life in our patients. Um, and we can look at sinonasal quality of life and skull-based quality of life. Um, it turns out at about three weeks, their uh, sinonasal quality of life is a bit worse. Three weeks after surgery, their nose, they have some complaints. But if you look over time, it actually gets much better, and it goes back to about its baseline. If you look at the ASBQ, which is an anterior skull-based surgery quality of life, it turns out that at six months, if you compare it with pre-op, these patients actually have improved quality of life. So if you measure their quality of life, it actually gets better after surgery if you can wait six months. 
However, um, we do use a lot of foot pedals, uh, and it can be painful to do these cases. Uh, so we're trying to minimize the number of foot pedals that we use. Uh, what's the future? Well, 3D stereoendoscopy may be very useful. This will overcome the issue of depth of field, which you don't have with a 2D endoscope. Um, 2D can be misleading. Um, and there are commercially available systems out there that use a 3D sensor uh, with a chip on the tip of the scope. And we have been involved in helping them develop it and using it uh, clinically. Um, we give courses every year. Uh, we have uh, some books that we've written. Um, and hopefully this has been informative for you all. And uh, I hope that uh, you, know, you can slowly start to embark on these approaches, take your time, uh, and see if they're useful for you. Thank you very much, Aaron. Thank you, Ted. I think this is a spectacular technical job, really pushing the limits safely and at the same time really doing a superb job. If I may ask, the three elements that was most important to you in the first 200 cases and the second 200 cases, one of which was really the gasket, the nasal, nasal flap, that uh, nasal septal flap you talked about. What are the other two that you say were so instrumental for people who want to really get going with endoscopy that would help them? The sort of uh, pearls of advice that you really can't write in your papers, but you really want to share it with others, please. Well, I think one of the things that I often tell the residents when they're doing these approaches is that it's important to remove a lot of bone. Uh, you can't make a little tiny bone opening. If you do, you're going to not see what you're doing, and you're going to end up pulling on something. But you only gain the confidence to make a big bone opening if you know you can close it. So you first have to establish that you can do closures and establish ways of closing so that you're not worried. Because what keeps you making a small bone opening is you're worried about a CSF leak. But if you're no longer worried about a CSF leak and you don't even care, and you say, I'm going to take as much bone as I need to get this job done safely, then you're much more likely to get the job done safely than if you're hindering yourself with a small bone opening. The same can be true of the sphenoid sinus. The sphenoid sinus anterior wall has to be completely opened. You don't want to see any bone obstructing your field of view. In fact, the whole keel of the sphenoid sinus, uh, the rostrum, we take out the whole thing, particularly if we're going to use a nasal septal flap, because you don't want that flap going over a big lip of sphenoid sinus, because it's just going to be hanging in the breeze. Uh, and the other key pearl is if you're using a, a nasal septal flap, you have to take out all the mucosa in the sphenoid sinus, because if you leave mucosa, Behind a nasal septal flap, you'll get a mucus seal, right? Because it's just going to start producing mucus behind your flap. It'll pull your flap off, and you may have to go back in and drain that mucus seal. So those are some of the, the key things that we've learned that have really helped us over the years. Thank you again, and we really enjoyed the discussion, Ted.